suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Yes, welcome, dear listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. This is episode 239. I, have, I am, of course, am Trevor, the Iron Fist, with me, nearly as always, Paul the Twelfth Man. Greetings, Earthlings. You're probably wondering out there, why do we keep calling this podcast the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove? Velvet Glove scampered off to regional Australia and has left us alone. But we're fortunate because on this occasion, the Velvet Glove has Skyped in. Welcome aboard, Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. How are we all? G'day, Scott. Yes. And a very special thank you to Father Anonymous, too, for that uh, little funeral service he put at the end of last week's podcast. I did enjoy that thoroughly. Yes. Thank you, Father Anonymous. Thank you very much for that. So... Uh, we've already got odds in the chat room asking if we're going to be talking about floods, fire and destruction, probably all of the above. <laughs> See how we go. We're never sure where we're going to end up odds on this podcast. So uh, this is definitely a current affairs version. We're going to run through what's been happening in Australia and around the world. So um, no sort of uh, philosophy or overarching themes of morals or things like that. It's just the day-to-day uh, minutiae of what's been happening in Australia. So if, you've been, uh, if this is the first time you've listened to the podcast, we sometimes tackle the big topics, so have a look through our back catalogue. And if you're an international listener, there's been some good ones lately about morals and the uh, historical accuracy of the Bible in recent times. But this one's going to be mainly about Australia and what's going on here. And, well, uh, it is a bit of a, a disaster. What's happened. It just gets more and more depressing, the state of politics in this country. Mm. So... <laughs> oh, what, have, what, what have we got? I mean... Uh, Gee, you are the master of the understatement, Trevor. Yeah, well, thanks, Scott. Um, I, I mean, this whole saga with... Um, with Bridget McKenzie. Yes. I mean, she... The Auditor-General came out and said, there's a real problem here. I, I'm the Auditor-General and I can see that she has diddled the books and made payments to people who were less deserving than others... Mm because it was favourable to her party. Exactly. And then what we get is the Prime Minister says, well, I'm not happy with that report. I'm going to get my former Chief of Staff (laughs) to write a report. Who else would you get? And he comes out with one that says she didn't do anything wrong except she forgot to declare a donation to Mm. a gun club that she was a member of, but everything else was okay. There's really nothing to see here, is there? Yeah. Scott? Thoughts? It was bullshit from start to finish. Yeah. You know, there's no point having an independent Auditor General if you don't listen to his or her advice. His his or her advice, I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman that wrote the report, but whatever it was, he, she or it that wrote the report said that there was a bias there that favoured National Party and Coalition seats and there were marginal National Party and marginal Coalition seats um, and then, they, you know, they threw 100 grand at uh, Tony Abbott's seat to try and keep him in office too, which didn't work. But, you know, you've got to listen to the Auditor-General. You've got to take everything that they say on board. 
But no, apparently not, because if you're a Bible thumper like our Prime Minister, you just go in there, you cross yourself and that sort of stuff, and you go to confession, you say, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea grande culpa. No, 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 he's not a Catholic, Scott. Oh, sorry, I apologise. Yeah, okay. Anyway... He can go in. He can go into the privacy of his own church and say to the Almighty, "I'm sorry, I have sinned, you know, but I did it for the greater good." And you've got this. What's really nasty about this is that they are proving Trevor right in oh. that Australia is following the United States, mm. but we're following it at a much faster rate than what we used to. You know, it used to take 10 years for what became standard in practice in the US to find its way over here. Now it's happening in three years. You know, you just got to look, well, it's happening less than that time now because the Republicans were justifying Donald Trump's charges in impeachment by saying that um, it's for the greater good because if we get our president re-elected, it'll be better for the whole country. You know? It's God's will. It, mm. Well, it might be God's will, but Jesus Christ, you, you've got to wonder how the hell they could ignore a scathing report by the Auditor-General, you know? You could just brazenly um, just <laughs> ignore these things and just keep going. That's mm. the new reality we're in. Yep. That, and it's very Trumpian response, isn't it? Is to just, it is, yeah. It's just to ignore the truth of the matter and to come out with a, yeah. a, an internally biased report and say, well, I prefer that one. And the other thing is, can we see a copy of... Of that report? No. No, we can't. It's like asking for Donald Trump's tax returns. Yes. Yes. So, oh, I've just got this other report and it says this and don't worry about it and that's what I'm going to be using. And and to think that we can't even see it, it it just – it's taken to another level. And um, what I wanted to say was that in the past – like if I could talk to some other friends about this who are more right-wing leaning, they would say something like, well, they all do it. They all cheat. They all favour their own side. They all are up to skullduggery. And this sort of practice is common and has been going on for years. Mm. But my answer would be, in the past, when you got caught, you did have to suffer a consequence. You you know, Ros Kelly with her whiteboard had to resign. Mm. We had Paddington Bear. We've had ministers resign Mm. because they failed to declare a stuffed teddy bear or a bottle of wine, mm. if you remember. The New South Wales Premier resigned after it was revealed that he didn't declare a bottle of wine, Indeed. which was a gift. And another minister who declared a television, he wrote it down as black and white instead of colour, oh. and that was enough to resign. Like, yeah. So it used to be that you could, sure, things would happen, but um, when you got caught, you were actually, okay, you've got me, and... You'd have to resign. And we'd all recognise they'd probably come back at another yeah. time and live to fight another day. But now we don't even get that. Yeah. Uh, it's another step down a very Bridget, sorry... Bridget has fallen on her own shotgun, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but where's the shame in, in the government? There's no shame at all, is no. there? It did take no. her a long time to fall on that shotgun, though, didn't mm. it? And, you know, there was another part to all this where they were talking about whether it was actually legal for her to make these sort of payments the way she did. And uh, the Attorney-General, Christian Porter, um, disagreed with the Australian National Audit Office conclusion that it was um, executed without legal authority. Mm. Do we get to see Porter's report? No, we can't see his advice. No, like, of course not. They just make up stuff and say, there you go, you beauty. Mm. Um, let's move on. 
Even Bill Shorten this afternoon on the news, he said nothing seems to stick to Scott Morrison. Well, in a world where the media is dominated by his side, uh, it can facilitate that. That's part of the problem. It's not all on his side, though. The Guardian certainly isn't on his side. It creates a firebreak, though, for his supporters who read material from that side. I mean, I can't remember exactly, but if you were to go back to the the other examples we've just mentioned about Mm -hmm. Paddington Bear and the colour TV, I would have the feeling that at that time all of the media was calling for the head Mm. of of those ministers at the time. It wasn't the partisan sort of media that we have now. Mm-hmm. Would that be your recollection, Scott? Um, I think so, but I don't recall the exact mm. times of that. It was in the early days of the Hawke government, wasn't it, that they had to stand down? Um, it was back in the 80s and 90s, yeah. Yeah, back in the 80s and 90s. But, mm. the, you know, that was back when we had an Australian newspaper that was actually relatively independent. Yeah. You know, it was actually a decent newspaper back then. Now it's not. Wow. You know? Yeah. Even the Courier Mail, you could actually read that and get something out of it, but really? not anymore. Yeah. No, the, yeah. It, it's definitely changed for the worse. So our democracy is in trouble when the mm. executive can just do what it likes and says, no, we're not going to show you documents. In fact, we're just going to generate documents that we say favour us and too bad for you. Did you read Catherine Murphy's article in The Guardian a few days ago? Yeah. That, I thought she made some very good points yeah. about... The you know the the way that our democracy does need more transparency and more accountability, and I thought yes. she wrote a good article. Yeah, so um, so that's just depressing. Um, I don't know if I sent you this one, but on the John Menedy blog there was an article by David Williamson. Did you, did I send you that one at all? Um, if it's I don't uh, recall I it. may not have said that one to you. So David Williamson is the famous oh, yeah. famous yeah. playwright. It is here. Yeah. Uh, famous playwright. Mm-hmm. And um, he he made this point. He said that um, and it's worth reading a fair bit of it. So rather than paraphrasing, I'm going to read you know a fair amount of it, dear listener. Um, he said political parties that are left often still hold to the enlightenment belief that we are rational creatures that the person who has the best evidence-based argument will win the debate. Sadly, as long as they do, they'll keep losing. So that is, the left will keep losing. And this is one of your things, 12th Man, is you you have a a strong belief that rational argument will prevail. (sighs) Do I? I have a strong belief that rational argument should prevail. I'm not sure I believe it does always Uh, uh, prevail. Okay. So... uh, Williamson makes the point that only recently that uh, brain imaging studies have shown how much of our actions stem not from our frontal lobes, where rational calculations take place, but from the deeper emotional centres of our brains. In a great number of cases, it's been conclusively shown that those emotional centres have already decided on a course of action before the decision is even registered in our frontal cortex. Mm. He says here, Scott Morrison knew deep in his marketing psych that we aren't rational creatures that we're more fearful and much more susceptible to emotional string-pulling than rational creatures ever would be. Completely agree. I agree. Absolutely. I take a a little bit of issue. I don't know that Scott Morrison is that smart and calculating, but he just did what came naturally to him, which meant that he appealed to that part of people. But maybe... He has a certain cunning, don't you think? A certain political cunning. And and he had nothing else to go with. And he knew... If if he was to rely on facts, he was screwed, so he had to rely on on that. On on keeping people nervous, keeping people worried about the economy, worried worried about their jobs and their hip pocket. Yep. Here's, Here's the really good part of this. So still David Williamson. 
I had my first inkling that Labor was going to lose the night before the election. I was in a taxi and I asked the driver if he would be pleased that if Labor won, the unconscionable tax lurks available to the rich would be stopped and the money saved to go to those who needed it. I wasn't prepared for the vehemence of the taxi driver's reply, who said, quote, I couldn't give a shit. I'm on the breadline, and all that matters to me is that I keep my head above water. Label will fuck the economy. All I care about is jobs and growth. And, the, and he has the, the, the coalition slogan, jobs and growth, jobs and growth. Indeed. And it, it, it really cuts through, doesn't it, obviously? It, yes. And so Williamson goes on, sure the electorate will tell surveyors their greatest concern is the environment, but for those on the margins it isn't. Yeah. And the neoliberal economy, which has decimated protections of unionism, uh, has pr- promoted the belief that increasing the already toxic levels of competitiveness in our society uh, will benefit us all. Uh, insecurity about the future is the dominant emotion. Mm. I agree with that. People are scared, insecure, and that's what will drive people. I'm one of them. Mm. And I didn't even vote for them. Yep. Uh, Williamson goes on, Scotty from the marketing had precisely the right message to go straight to the taxi driver's emotional insecurity, jobs and growth. The careful rationality of Labor's platform, um, he says, was basically wasted. And he says, until the parties to the left can get their head around the fact that Enlightenment assumptions that rationality will win the day, and until they find a way to address the emotional fears of those whose interests they are supposed to represent, uh, until they start addressing those, then they're going to keep losing. Um, He's dead right, I think. And uh, and I sort of have been banging on in the past a little bit that it's about the economy that they have to tackle... uh, the Conservative Party's head on mm. and say, these guys have a terrible record when it comes to absolutely. managing the economy. And, people and have no idea that's the case. And I agree, I agree wholeheartedly with you. And what they've got to do is that they've got to find someone who can cut through a lot better than Albanese can and a lot better than what Shorten could. Mm. And he's got to take a head on. He's got to say to these people, the growing gap between rich and poor, which your mates in the Tories have, uh, have allowed to happen, is why you're finding it hard to make ends meet because the spending class doesn't have any money. Mm. If you allow money to trickle down as the way it's supposed to, but it doesn't because it's not being redistributed by the government, then you will not have you will not have the level of insecurity that you've got over there. I mean, retail figures are the worst they've been in years. Mm. And it's because people aren't spending. They're not spending because they don't want to spend. They've got no money to spend. Or they're you know? scared of spending it because they think they might need it in the not too distant future. That's mm. right. They're scared. To, they're scared to spend it. Mm. But you know, if but, everyone but largely they haven't had it because mm, wage true. growth just yeah, hasn't happened. When you look at wage growth hasn't happened. Exactly. It's been flat for what a, a good decade, hasn't it? When, when you look at graphs that measure productivity and wage growth, what yeah. you see is productivity increasing and wage growth not increasing at the same rate, and no. it's just gone into profits that mm. have gone to the top end. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And Labor needs to tell that story. Absolutely they do. They've got to get out there. They've got to tell that story and they've got to be unashamed about it. Mm. Whereas if you, what you see right now is you've got a, um, a position that um, Labor appears to be embarrassed and ashamed to argue with the economy. Yes. Yep. Which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. I mean, Kevin Rudd, his cash splash, which they called it, which the Tories called it, 
I wasn't in favour of it at the time. However, looking back on it, it worked. It worked. It gave the economy the shot in the arm it needed at the time, mm. and it worked. I didn't think it would work. However, it did work. Mm. And it worked. It kept us out of recession. Now, building the education revolution, yeah, it probably wasn't as well executed as it could have been. However, that sort of prolific spending by the government kept the economy moving. It's... um gone through a real uh, evolution the way we talk about the economy we think the economy is everything down to the deficit it's not the deficit mm. the deficit is one part of it and you've got to be able to look at the overall economic situation to work out whether or not the deficit is affordable well, because frankly it is affordable well well since the 80s people have been trained to look at gdp growth uh, unemployment figures, interest rates, house prices, low taxes and low taxes and, and privatisation of government functions, and and they've just been indoctrinated that the conservative governments and private enterprise are the best management managers of these things. And the facts tell you the opposite. But mm. it's also just people have been trained to forget about quality of life and just look at these numbers. And I was talking to a friend who was. Um, She'd just been to America and she said, you know, say what you like about Trump, but the economy's booming. Well, what she's talking about is the share market. Mm. And the share market's boomed yeah. because he cut all the taxes and provided cheap incentives for, the, for that sector. Yeah. But wages haven't grown. Your mm. average American is really struggling and is working two jobs. That, that's not – the share market is not the economy. And exactly. Can I mention one more thing? That's the other thing. It's a real problem. Mm. My my son's just returned from a, uh, a trip to the United States, and he spent a little while in Los Angeles. And uh, he said, he said it's shocking. He said walking through downtown Los Angeles, he said every park is full of homeless people. Yeah. He said you know every every space where a homeless person might camp, like under, of uh, you know overpasses. And yeah. He said. There are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of people mm. living on the streets. Yeah. And he said it's, you know, it's scary because you don't want to go into a public park because, you know, people are probably going to approach you, ask you for money, and who knows yes. what might happen. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's a, a, a definitely a, you know, a big gap yep. between the people who are doing well yep. and yep. the rest. And the middle classes so they say, are yep. uh, seeing a decline in living standards. Yep. And the people right at the bottom, they're going onto the streets. Yep. But in America, at least you've now got people like Bernie Sanders and AOC, even though I, don't, I know you don't like, uh, Not don't like her. AOC. But you're getting these public figures who are now basically questioning the whole capitalism yeah. enterprise and introducing... Um, openly socialist policies, mm. we haven't got that yet in Australia. The, our Labor Party is as right wing in many senses as, as yeah, the but Liberal we've, Party, but they've, 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 we've always had, they've shied away from this argument. No, we've always had a, a, a better sort of, um, what would you say, a better safety net, public safety net. For, uh, indeed we have. In the United States, surely. In, in, indeed we have. But until very recent times, it was a death knell for any politician 
in America to call themselves a socialist. Well, and, and Bernie Sanders openly calls himself a socialist. I think he calls himself a social democrat. Yeah. And yeah. when people call him a socialist, he sort of doesn't shy away from it, though. That's true. So, mm. uh, and he's very, very likely to win the Democratic nomination. It looks like it. Yeah. Well, so, do you think he's going to win or do you reckon? Not um, sure. Elizabeth Warren will. No, I think, uh, no, I, I'm, I think Bernie's, to say, Bernie is going to win it. Do you he, think? he is going to win it. Okay. Yeah. Do you well, want to bet a better six-pack on that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where's your six-pack riding, right. Scott? I would have thought that Elizabeth Warren was probably the best of the whole lot because she's got an incredibly large uh, uh, volume of policies and all that sort of stuff that's all out there. And she yeah. says, if you if you ask her something, she says, it's in my policy document number, blah, 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 blah. You know, she's across the brief and all that sort of stuff incredibly well. I wonder if Bernie, Bernie Sanders' age and, you know, health is not a, a liability. He's younger than Absolutely. Trump. Absolutely. Is he younger than Trump? Yeah. Or Really? If he's if he's he's very close to him, he's within a year of Trump. But he he had a heart problem recently, yeah, yeah. didn't he? But look at the two of them. Yeah, Who do you Trump's reckon's going to live longer? Walking longest? heart attack. So, you know? Maybe with Elizabeth Warren as vice vice president, and then if Bernie keels over, yeah, I, 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 and that would be a brilliant ticket if they had her yeah. as vice president and him as president. Then that would be a brilliant ticket. Because you'd have two unapologetic socialists who are out there arguing and that sort of stuff. Mm. They're both from the Senate, so, yeah, I think it's a great idea. That's if Elizabeth is uh, comfortable being under Bernie. Hmm. Well, uh, you don't know. But, you know, I would have thought that if the Yanks actually get a – if the Yanks actually get a taste of what it was like in the 1950s, then they would vote for it again because right now they're being conditioned exactly the way Trevor has been – exactly the way Trevor says we've been conditioned – where you believe that you've got to have someone that's in charge of privatising your government, blah, 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 blah. But if you've got two people who say, yes, we want unions to be strong again, we want to, we want to have a society that has free education for you if you go to the local They don't get it college. yet. They, they've been so indoctrinated, they don't get it yet. Well, I know that, but this is what I'm saying. If you could give them one term mm. under that, yeah. then they would actually really start to open their eyes and they'd think to themselves, well, fuck me, we were wrong. Yeah. I mean, still, you know, most Americans are just uh, temporarily inconven- inconvenienced millionaires. Isn't that the story? Like they honestly <laughs> think that they're going to be, you know. The American dream, in, yeah. In, Anyone can be a multimillionaire. They've just got to work hard enough, right? Oh, Warren says Donald 73, Bernie 78. There you go. He is five years older. So, um, so there we go. There is a difference in the age. Yeah. Um, just while uh, I was going to mention it later, but I might as well just chip in with this now. Because uh, the Democrats are having their caucuses and primaries are happening now, and I just uh, came across a little video from Robert Wright that quickly explained how that works. Oh, yeah. So He was uh, in the Clinton administration, was. he? was, yeah. So you hear this term about um, primaries and caucuses, and we just had the Iowa caucus, and basically different systems apply in different states mm. for Democrats and Republicans, depending on what their local state has decided mm. will apply there. So uh, in Iowa, they have a caucus. So... Basically, people gather together in these school halls and gymnasiums and they have an initial sort of vote and mm. say, who is your preferred candidate? Okay. People physically move around the room and line up 
oh, really? in lines according wow. to uh, the candidate that they prefer. That interesting. And then they look at a thing, I think it was about 15% in Iowa, that if your candidate did not have 15% of the votes in that room, then you had to um, abandon your, your candidate and go and uh, stand in line for okay. one of the other candidates. And Preferential system. Indeed, yes. And during this process, the other candidates' crowd would be yelling at them and saying, come over to Bernie. Bernie has this policy, that policy. And there was this sort of persuasion-type stuff happening where they were trying to convince these people who had gone for one candidate who hadn't qualified to move into their their line. I have no idea. Yeah, and so... um, And so... Uh, and then once you reach a certain threshold point, they then said, okay, that's enough, and then they look at the room and, and tally up the numbers and then they would have a certain number of delegates allocated depending. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a sort of a caucus system. Mm. And the other system that they have is a primary where <laughs> instead of that system, you just go in and, and you vote in a sort of a secret ballot and, and that's... That's how you nominate your preferred candidate. So if you hear the terms caucuses Mm. and primaries, uh, caucuses are these open debates in gymnasiums Mm. and primaries are are more of a secret ballot. And um, uh, so, yeah, say you then get 40% of the people in the the room, you'll get 40% of of the delegate votes from that Mm. particular uh, area. Mm. Um, Which system do you think is better? See, I was just listening to a debate about this on, um, oh, God, why can't I remember the podcast I listened to? Cognitive Dissonance. Yep. And they had a guy that was the, um, he was running the, not the whole Iowa caucus, but he was running one section of it. Yep. And he had a, his opinion was that there was positives, positives and negatives to both systems. Yeah. He liked the fact that they can't remember what they call it, but the preferential system that you get in a caucus, mm. where you actually get to, you have you, you can vote with your heart, and then after that you vote with your head. Yes, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, and that is why I think that um, the American system should move to that sort of preferential system. Yeah, because I- then you would have a situation that you could have a Ralph Nader running. And he wouldn't hemorrhage all the votes away from the Democrats that he did, mm. getting um, which over the line. Yeah, in first past the post, once they've once the people have voted, their their votes are virtually dead votes if they voted for the third party, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, um, so using that system, if you look at uh, the caucuses and the initial vote that people made when they first lined up in the gymnasium, uh, Bernie Sanders won by about three percent. Oh. And it was only then when uh, the minor candidates got reshuffled around the room that Buttigieg edged marginally in front. And at the time of speaking, I don't think the counting's actually been quite revealed, but it's they're they're within a very very small margin of each other at the mm-hmm. moment. Mm. But um, but that initial count was one in favour of Bernie Sanders. Mm. Yeah. So so that was that. And then. Um, and just getting back to the other option with primaries, sometimes the primaries are closed so that in order to vote you must be pre-registered with that particular party. Sometimes they're semi-closed in that you can either be registered or you can be independent 
and some of them can be open where you could be a, a registered voter with the other party. It's it's kind of weird. And, and, and amongst and go in and it seems to try be, and mess up the, the well vote in the, the yeah. So it seems to be a wide variety, either a caucus at a primary, and the primary has different um, people who are eligible for voting, and all of this varies depending on the particular state involved. What and a, and it's know. the same with the electoral college, or yeah. the actual voting system is determined and organised by the state as well. Yes, so whether they have a, uh, a levers in a booth or That's whether they right. have paper and pen or whether they have something electronic. It's bizarre yeah. that they don't have consistency across the United is, States. Yeah, and, uh, and then, of course, say with the Democrats, once you've got your delegate numbers um, organised through this process and they go to the convention, if um, uh, basically at the first vote the delegates have to vote in accordance with what the uh, the vote was back in their home state, what they oh. you know, they have to vote in that manner. But if it's a contested um, nomination process, mm. in that there's not a, nobody comes away with a fifty percent, more than fifty percent, then those delegates uh, then become more flexible mm. in how they vote. Become so free agents, yes, right. yeah, in order to get someone over the line. So yeah. Uh, interesting situation. Uh, somebody yeah. in the chat room, Rob in the chat room. G'day, Rob. He. Um, it's totally off topic, but I, I was used to play frisbee with Rob and I haven't for a long time because I got my knee operated on Rob and it's perfect now and I don't want to muck it up. So I'm, I'd really like to be back on the frisbee field, but I'm reluctant to for risk of uh, mucking up my knee again. But anyway, thank you, Rob, in the chat room. So, um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's a little diversion into American politics and caucuses and primaries. It is interesting. It, it is. Yeah. Just harking back to what we were talking about before about um, what David Williamson was saying and how it's it's the economy. Actually, before we do that, we're just bemoaning um, our leaders uh, as we do. And um, one thing I wanted to mention was um, we've got this religious freedom bill coming up and – it's I came I came across an article in the Star Observer where uh, opposition leader Anthony Albanese um, met with stakeholders to discuss the proposed religious discrimination bill, and it was a round table involving about twenty five representatives from national pig bodies, including health services, human rights groups, law councils, unions, business lobbies, women's groups, LGBTIQ and disability advocacy groups. And I looked at the picture and sent it around to the National Secular Lobby and to the Rationalists and, and nobody us. got an invite. None of our no, – nobody from the – From, from, from secular the, groups. Nobody from secular, atheist, rationalist groups oh, that's was invited to a meeting called by Anthony Albanese of stakeholders. Ah, so he sent out the invitations, did he? <laughs> Yeah. And he sent none to secular <coughs> groups. Exactly. None of them invited. All the work that the National Secular Lobby's tried to do to get a voice, the rationalists have been around for years, the Atheist Foundation's been around for years, yep. and they couldn't invite those anybody from those groups to this meeting. So, Well, it's really fucking crook, isn't it? It's very disappointing, to yeah. say the least. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't know what the hell the National Secular Lobby's got to do. It's, you know, 
have they got to get as big as what the ACL is or something like that? It's just so hard to get influence. I've just put a picture on the um, on the on the live feed of the of the delegates there, all twenty five of them, and uh, no no secularists amongst them. Did you recognise any of the faces, Trevor? <coughs> no. Um, so no, but I, I asked National Secular Lobby and I asked um, Meredith, and they weren't invited, weren't contacted. So right. yeah. well, maybe uh, we should write a letter to Anthony Albanese. And express our disgust. It's just... For what it's worth. It's getting these people to care. It's so hard. There's, we just do not have any power or influence. Our side has no influence at this stage. Mm. <sighs> depressing. It is depressing. Right. Well, what's, what's really depressing about that is that, you know, Paul's proven to be wrong yet again because a rationalist <laughs> argument to that would be... 40% of the population in the last census said they had no religion. Mm. They're the biggest non they're the biggest group of anyone that answered that faith question. Mm. And they've come down on that and they're ignoring 40% of the population. Yeah. None of that makes any sense whatsoever. Yeah. Right. So that was a little diversion on uh, on religious matters. Just back to this idea about the economy and how important it is to the way people vote and I've got here a link to a study done by the Australian Electoral... It's the Australian Electoral Study done by the ANU. And we've got links there where you can um, access the report. There's like 117 graphs and a whole bunch of information where they basically um, surveyed 2,179 voters about why they voted the way they did in the most recent federal election. (coughs) And... Uh, from the executive summary, a general impression from the trends document is that over the last 32 years, Australia's political attitudes have been shifting to the left, particularly on social issues, that we are attracted to Labor's policies on most issues. But what seems to push voters to the coalition is a belief that it is more competent in managing the economy. So... uh, Even if, according to Trevor, that isn't true. (coughs) Indeed. If you want to look at different statistics, you can mm-hmm. make a very good case. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the case. That, that's right. So I previously mentioned that just based on age, uh, the older you are, the more likely you are to vote for the uh, Conservatives. And that if you're very young, uh, there's a very high proportion of Green voters. Mm. And basically all those Green voters became uh, Conservative voters as they got older. And Labor's <laughs> vote amongst the age groups was relatively similar across the age groups. But um, in this study, <coughs> they've said to people, what are the most um, important election issues? And top of the pile, management of the economy by a long way, then health and Medicare, then taxation, then the environment, global warming, education, superannuation, refugees, immigration, government debt. So uh, the most important for people was management of the economy and Um, basically there's a number of different graphs which show that um, they asked voters the same, uh, on same 10 issues, um, whose policies, Labor or Liberals, would you say came closer to your own views on each of these issues? And basically people just line up with uh, 
the conservative side on economic issues and and essentially um, it was their most and with the swing voters uh, why did they swing the way they did if they swung if they swung to the coalition it was for the economy and taxation and the leaders and if they swung to labor it was for the environment and there just wasn't enough swinging because of environment mm. money matters and yep. uh the same sort of thing happened in the UK with um, Boris Johnson. When you look at um, the statistics there, who did they trust to run the economy? Uh, 34 in favour of Boris Johnson as opposed to 16 for Jeremy Corbyn. Mm-hmm. And, um, and who was most likely to put Britain into a recession? They thought Labor was. Yes. So, <coughs> so these are just important issues and... Um, we can moan and groan about leftist policies, about religious discrimination bills and uh, climate policy and marriage equality and all these things, but we people have to be convinced about what's going to be in the best interest of the hip pocket, uh, otherwise we're wasting our breath. And do you think the, uh, the power brokers in the Federal Labor Party are listening to the podcast tonight? <sighs> They're not listening to the podcast. I don't have any idea if they understand that at all. Because but if they are, at least they'll, you know, have a heads up mm. where they need to go. Mm. So, um, so that's that. Um, uh, let me else. What else have we got here? Um, uh, anyone interested in becoming a school chaplain? Oh, no, thank you. <laughs> I used to share a staff room with the school chaplain. Mm. He was a very nice chap, mm. not very open-minded. But right, nice guy. Nice guy. Yeah. And that's why he had the job because he was a nice guy. Well, uh, according to Scripture Union, uh, if you're applying for a job, then here are the first four things. So this is a job, a school chaplain in a public high school yes. where you are not allowed to proselytise. Like Allegedly. You're, you're specifically forbidden Except they do, and let me tell you from personal experience, I know he did. Mm. But <laughs> under the Scripture Union website, um, the first four criteria for the job application process is demonstrated Christian character and commitment, oh, yeah. a broad understanding of the issues important to consider when working in interchurch ministries, a demonstrated ability to apply the teachings of the Bible to real-life situations and communicate its message relevantly to others. Jesus. And an ability to express faith openly whilst remaining sensitive to the religious and cultural beliefs of others. That's the the first four. Isn't that unbelievable? (laughs) To work as a chaplain where allegedly you're not supposed to be proselytising and they are the, the main criteria. It then goes on to things that you'd expect, like ability to work with children and oh, ability to... Trivial, you know, trivial matters. Yeah, but yeah. the important ones they put first. Yep. Look, I know, I know because I saw him do it. He was, he was running Bible study classes at lunchtime and, and I, I even witnessed students coming up to talk to him in the staff room about, right. you know, their personal stuff. And I know, yes. I know that, you know, they were usually kids that had sort of you know, joined his little Bible study group. Yes, yeah. He so, was definitely proselytising, yeah. no doubt whatsoever. Yep. Oh, and, you know, I told you about the day when the whole school was herded yeah. up to the school hall for yes. that yep. American evangelist. Yes, to, indeed. To you give have. the kids a pep yep. talk. Gosh. 
Okay. Hey, at the last, uh, in the end of the last podcast, I played a little bit of um, of the um, Father Anonymous and his <laughs> lamenting of the demise of the Velvet Glove. Um, I've also received another uh, voice message. And dear listener, before I play it, just um, heads up, on the website, there's a link to SpeakPipe and anybody can leave us a a message there. So if you feel like you'd like to leave us a voicemail message, yeah. we love them. So, so do that. Uh, here's one that came in, and uh, I'll just play this one and um, and see what this person had to say. And I say middle name. We say, I don't have one. We were too poor. Oh, <laughs> fist, hard bottom here. It might surprise you. Nay, it might astound you to know that I too have walked in the long, cool shadow of poverty. I was once so poor, I could only afford to drive in a BMW. It breaks my heart to hear your story. And although people know me as a champion of the working man and as a man of philanthropy, few people know my gift for giving names. And so it is, henceforth, that you shall be known as Trevor Tinker Bell. <laughs> Tinker Bell. It has a noble sound, doesn't it? No, no, don't thank me. To know that you shall henceforth be known as Trevor Tinker Bell is reward enough. Thanks, Landon. Well, a, a tinker has a Thanks. certain historical significance, doesn't it? Does it? Yeah, a tinker was was a trade or a craft, if you like. A okay. what, what was the work of a tinker, Scott? A tinker was someone who worked know. worked with um, metal or something, making some things out of metal. I think wasn't it? Right. We what must look that up, right, Warren? Look it up, please. Right. So, um, so anyway, tinker. There a we tinker. go. It, it, but it was a job. It was mm-hmm. a it was a craft of some sort. Mm-hmm. Yep, and. Uh, so also uh, got a uh, an email from it was actually from my brother Glenn. So he's listening to the podcast and remember it's we one talked of our beer sponsors. Too. Yes, indeed. Uh, and I think Glenn, we're actually onto your uh, beers, the James Squire at the moment. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, it's a good drop. It is. And we mentioned the Nazi flag that was flying over a house in Victoria, mm-hmm. and mm. Glenn said, "Well, um, maybe." This person wasn't a Nazi because the swastika is actually was co-opted by the Nazis and was an existing symbol. So um, he said that if you go into the uh, historical historic marble entrance of Sydney's Customs House, you'll see what looks like Nazi swastikas mm. across the floor. Yeah, but you knew that, didn't you? And it's associated with Indian religion. Um, well. The motives. There were, there were um, I think it's temples that I walked through in Thailand. Yes, it's mm. related. It's Buddhist with Buddhism. Isn't it? Yes, mm. it is. Yeah, because there, there were a whole heap of go- there were a whole heap of gods up there that had um, swastikas around their necks. Indeed, right. Um, um, and I, I remember in um, the sorry to cut you off, but the uh, cathedral in Christchurch before it knocked out, got knocked over by the earthquake, they had swastikas all around the walls. And I forget what they were called, but they, they said it could be called a swastika or it could be called something else. Yeah. So uh, apparently that sort of just a simple uh, swastika is a motive is a, a file, a file thought, an ancient decorative motive symbolising good luck. Mm. Um, and 
swastika comes from Sanskrit word swastika. There you go. Yes. So while they didn't invent it, they gave it a bad name. And but the flag itself obviously was pretty obviously of the German Nazi um, yes, regime, uh, wasn't indeed. It? As I subsequently explained and sent a picture to Glenn, um, mm. it had kind of like the Iron Cross sort of um, happening there, and mm. um, uh, and it had the colours of the German uh, flag as well. Yeah, and it had like that sort of eagle representation, mm-hmm. and so it had a few things there that was yeah. There was nothing mm. unclear about its um, its significance. Yeah. So in this case, I think we can be pretty safely. Mm. sure that they were, in fact, um, trying to give the impression of a Nazi flag. So, okay, my computer is not happy, but hopefully um, everything's going okay on the live stream. Um, Right. Uh, What else have we got here? Um, uh, We had some ethical dilemmas carried over. Before I get onto those, let me tell you about this one. So in sort of a... What's wrong with America segment? How about this story? Uh, Hot and dusty from installing drywall in their garage, Tilly Buchanan and her husband stripped down to their underwear. She also took off her bra. When Miss Buchanan's three young stepchildren saw her and asked her why she was topless, she said if their father could bear his chest, then so could she. Miss Buchanan now stands accused in a Utah court of three counts of lewdness involving a child, <laughs> charges that could carry a sentence of up to one year. Wow. And ten years on the sex offender registry. Oh, dear. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. And on Tuesday, a Salt Lake City judge rejected a challenge to the charges by her lawyers who argued that the law, which forbids exposure of the female breast below the top of the areola, was unconstitutional. So, um, to wonder he knew the, the, the term for that part of the nipple. Mm. Basically, they were stepchildren, and at some stage they've said to their uh, biological mother, Oh, I guess what happened, you know, they're doing stuff, and she's reported her, and, and there you go. You can end up in a court in the USA, in a civilized country, <laughs> for, for stripping Exposing off while you're doing yeah. some DIY on a hot day in Utah. Wow. wow. There you go. It is Utah, though. Yeah. So that's that's crazy number one in America. And here's how's, how's this one? Um, again, Salt Lake City, Utah. Ann Lovell had never owned a passport before last year. Now the 62-year-old teacher is a frequent flyer travelling every few months to Tijuana, Mexico to buy medication for rheumatoid arthritis mm-hmm. with the tickets paid for by the state of Utah's public insurer. So the state of Utah's public insurer has said, you know what, rather than us buy your medication, Mm. it's cheaper for us to send you to to Mexico to buy your medication. And we know how much weed costs in Tijuana, right? Just regular drugs, regular prescription drugs. Seriously? Yes. It's for rheumatoid arthritis. So um, You're not going down there no, to get stoned. No, it was for regular over-the-counter prescription drugs, <sighs> and um, so she now makes this trip regularly, and they pay her to go because that's cheaper than Isn't buying that, the drugs in America. That's absurd. That's the state of play in that country. Because drugs, if, and I've read that uh, Americans who live close to the Canadian border mm-hmm. uh, regularly cross yeah. the border to buy their drugs too. Yeah. So um, uh, 
So that's uh, – Do you suppose she lit up a couple of doobies while she was down there? I, she's a 62-year-old teacher. I don't think there's any – there's no hint there's no of any – doubt that she would have. There's no hint of any sort of smoking of weed in this story. I, it's a straight-out oh normal prescription drug, too expensive in America, head down to Mexico. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if it was just cannabis or something, she'd go to Colorado where it's – I dare say she would, Where it's yeah. free. So, um, so yeah. Uh, this, this, that's what the state of play has reached in that country. Right. That's absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Uh, before we just move on, yes. Warren Foster has defined a tinker, a person who makes a living by travelling from place to place, mending pans and other metal utensils. There you go. There I was close. Go. You were close. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> right. Thanks, Warren. Yep. Um, also from Michael West blog, there's a bit on political donations. So... We're lamenting our slide into a gradual slide into tyranny in this American style tyranny. You mean? Yes, and um, well, when our prime minister just pulls you know reports out of his bottom, doesn't let us read them, and yeah. and excuses his ministers because of them, yeah. uh, we've just suddenly got a situation where all power to the executive. Um, yeah. So uh, political donations has long been a problem, and. Yep. The uh, Electoral um, sort of Commission came out with uh, a disclosure of, of what's happened in terms of donations um, for the period 2018 to 2019. So, you know, we're a long way after that and we're, we're only just getting them. So how do you two feel about the idea of uh, scrapping all political donations and funding it from the public purse and just allocating a certain amount? to each party or each candidate would be even better mm-hmm. because then that would include the minor parties and the micro parties. Uh, allocate election and electioneering funding to each candidate. And it, keep it extremely small. Keep it small, keep it modest and say, do your best on that amount of money but no extra funding from outside sources. What do you think of that? Great idea. I agree wholeheartedly with that because mm. I think it's ridiculous. Our, our elections have become a arms race between both sides yeah. to get the biggest war chest so they can then thump each other with these television advertising. Yeah, and we saw what Whereas, happened with Clive Palmer's influence at the last election. Absolutely, yeah. Now, now, he didn't win a seat, but he got Morrison over the line, you know. Had they have actually had, he, had he actually donated the money to the Liberal Party, then it would have been more upfront, more genuine than what it was because he mm. tried to make out that he was running for his own free will, but mm. he wasn't running for his own free will. He was running on behalf of Morrison. Yeah. Mm. You know, and that just it, it, the whole thing colours the whole the whole thing is coloured by that. You know, you've got a government down there that really should be pursuing him over the nickel refinery that went belly up, mm. and they're not pursuing him. And look, uh, you, you may recall uh, several weeks ago, Trevor, you, you sent us or you posted perhaps on the, on the Facebook page a video about the links between mm. certain coalition coal, coal interests, yeah. ministers in the mining industry, which I thought mm. was very interesting. Matt Canavan featured prominently in it, mm. if I recall correctly, mm. and he has just resigned his portfolio mm. to support Barnaby's um, 
shot at the leadership of the Nationals again. Yeah, I put it on that the Facebook page, dear listener. If you haven't seen it, go and have a look. Yeah, uh, it was a very interesting one. Yeah, and it shows how Barnaby people... went off his meds. And, and it shows how people... <laughs> he goes off his meds regularly, doesn't he? Mm, people he move does, from yeah. industry into advisory positions yes. very close to the politicians and then back out again, back to industry, That's and right. even then the politicians themselves... Uh, moving into industry after yeah. their times expired or from industry into politics and the connections were frightening. They so, were very yeah. concerning. I think that was from the Michael West blog again. Yeah. Um, so well, that was – I heard just recently, this is from someone, I don't know how true it is, but he reckons that most of Morrison's advisors are from the coal lobby. It wouldn't surprise, yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. So what we've got is – for starters, there's a threshold of $13,800. If you donate less than that, then nobody knows who you are. Yep. They don't have to disclose. So you could probably donate, you know, $13,000 multiple times and mm. nobody's the wiser. Yeah. So 20 to 40% of all private donations are never disclosed mm. because of that threshold. Yeah. And we can thank Mark Latham for that because he lost the election so badly that he delivered uh, John Howard a Senate majority and together with uh, Family First Steve Fielding, they increased it from what was $1,500 at Jesus. the time That's back a in big, 2004. big difference, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, um, so, for example, in the 2018-2019 return filed by the Federal National Party, they declared total revenue of $3.1 million, but only disclosed donors of $1 million. The other $2 million, we have no idea who they were. <laughs> How convenient. Mm. So at least uh, federal labour voluntarily discloses all donations above $1,000. Not necessarily the state branches, but at least the federal mm. one does. Including That's- donations in um, uh, Aldi shopping bags? I guess so. Let's <laughs> hope so. Um, the other thing in this article they make the point is about the number of public companies making political donations and... In the UK, the law was changed to require shareholder approval for any contributions. Well, that's interesting. Mm, and guess what? Suddenly it all dried up. So oh. not because people voted against it, but the directors stopped even asking. Did they? They, they thought, we're not even going to ask. Oh, really? So donations um, uh, are, are dried up from public companies in the UK and they also put a cap on the amount of spending that political parties could spend. Oh, did they? Depending on the number of electorates they were oh. contesting in. So they uh, basically once you've reached your maximum spend, what was the point of having the money as well? Mm. So, yeah, so there are things that can be done. Mm. Mm. So, No, well, I'm personally in favour of government funding, mm. a, a limited amount, but to each candidate, mm. to each registered candidate. Whether they're a sitting member or not, you know? Mm. Yep. Okay, I've got some um, I've got some ethical dilemmas carried over. Okay. We'll have a good ethical dilemma. We do. Twelfth man. Right. Scott, you love an eth- ethical dilemma as well? Mm. Okay. No, they're okay. Yep. <laughs> <Don't> <laughs> trying, get, so trying to get excited. Scott trying to get Scott to change his mind. So well first of all, um, Sonny Bill Williams. He's another Israel Folau. Yes, he's a religious type. Yes. So he's gone and uh, joined uh, a Super League team and he's refusing to wear the logo of the Super League's uh, title sponsor, 
uh, which is a betting company, <laughs> due to his religious beliefs. Oh. And at the moment, his team is sticking beside him. But those betting companies are pretty shady, though. Yeah. You have to. I mean, I hate betting companies. But you'd almost refuse to wear it on just plain ethical grounds, wouldn't you? Yes, but if you're honest, you would say I can't join this group in advance because wouldn't you? Yes, yes. don't so. sign the contract if that's one of the main sponsors, and yes. you don't want to wear their logo. Indeed, yeah. So he decided that, and um, so we'll see where that one ends up. Um, I just want to get to this one here. Um, still in America. Um, uh, no, not that one. Bear with me one second. Um, not that one either. Here we go. A Florida high school principal has been fired after claiming he could not confirm that the Holocaust was a factual historical event. A former high school principal in Boca Raton, Florida, was fired on Wednesday as a result of emails he sent to a student parent that appeared to cast doubt on the historical truth of the Holocaust. Is that a just cause to hire a school principal? To fire, you mean? Mm, to fire. I don't think so. Right. Do you? Scott? Um, I don't know. It's one of those things that I remember reading about when it first happened and I thought to myself, I'm not convinced that, you know, he was simply casting doubt on something. I just don't think what, that it what, was... What did he cast doubt? He was casting doubt on the historical... The historical accuracy of the reports of the Holocaust, mm-hmm. which you know, well, the, well, the historical truth of the the historical truth yeah. of the Holocaust, like not not sort of around the edges of it, but whether yeah, it actually no, happened. The historical yes. truth of it, of, and that sort of thing. Okay, he's he's casting doubt over the whole thing. Then he should have been fired for that. If he was Why? casting doubt whether there was eight million killed or four million killed, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, that's a different story because the Germans admitted to murdering 4 million. The Allies claimed 8 million. The 6 million Jews has been a compromise between the two. What if he was – so 12th – I think I would fall on the side of having him fired. Why? Mm. It's thought policing. Uh, Well, he looks to me to be incompetent in doing his job. Look, he's a principal. Mm. He's, he's not a classroom teacher. If you know mm. what principals do, they do not go into the classroom and mm. teach history. Mm. He's a principal. But, but, but you, he might express an outlandish view. It's not. What if he, what if he promoted uh, the flat earth? Fine. What if he said that I'm not convinced about uh, the earth being regardless, around? Regardless, so long as he you know, administers the school, runs the school appropriately and correctly and efficiently, no. I mean, it's thought policing. That's plain and simple. Isn't there a role for a principal to promote respect for facts and to then, aren't we really saying to children, yes. here's, the, here's how learning takes place. You, 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 you gather facts and then you, yes. and then you work out a hypothesis and then yeah. you check out whether that's true. And, Did you take so, any history courses so. during your Yes. Degree studies? Uh, no, no, high school, but not in not in, in uh, university. Not at university. Well, I, I remember very clearly my history teacher, that, well, the, the guy who mm. taught most of the history, uh, and he he basically said establishing what is a fact is is actually not as easy as most people assume. Mm. So to say something is a fact, I mean, people claim all sorts of things are facts that are not facts. Yes. Um, but ignoring that, I mean, there are some things that we know. 
there are true facts. The sun rises in the east. Well, That's we know the Holocaust was a fact. It, we know it took place that the Jews were gassed in large numbers. Of course, yes. And, we, and, we think that that's pre- as close to an established fact as you can get in history. However, yes. history is still a, oh, it's, a lot of it is a fact-free zone, to be quite frank. Yeah, yeah but this is, there, are, there are, you know, there are facts we can be certain of. Yeah. I mean. But look, what worries me is, yeah, right now, okay, um, it's a relatively open and free society. In the future, what if, you know, somebody decides we have to institute a law that any high school principal or teacher who doesn't agree that, you know, this list of so-called facts are actually facts or we can fire them, you know? Who knows in the future how that list will change? Now, you can't go down that path of policing people's thoughts. It's a very dangerous path to go down even if you think he's a moron for, you know, saying anything like that, I agree he's... He- I, I, if, he, if he had a job that was as a, uh, I don't know, as an accountant, um, working for a company, yeah. doing whatever, and as a sideline he had a website where he was, was promoting wacky ideas about flat earth and Holocaust denying, mm. couldn't care less. Um, there's... There's any number of jobs he could be doing. He could mm-hmm. be a football coach. He could be uh, a builder. He could be uh, any number of things. But when your role is to guide young people in their education mm-hmm. and you are just spitting in the face of something pretty fundamental to education. It's like, appalling. I agree with you. I, I would have thought that that point a school community could no. say, you are just setting the worst example for uh, what we're trying to promote mm-hmm. in this. I can see it as grounds mm-hmm. for not promoting him. Right. I can see it as grounds for it being a dampener on his career promotions. Mm-hmm. But firing somebody, no, that's thought policing. I'm sorry. I, don't, I can't, can't agree with it. Right. Okay. I mean, who does more damage? The mm-hmm. school principal who has some wacky ideas or the school football coach who's a fundamentalist Christian? Who does more damage, do you think? Uh, depending on circumstances, either one could do more damage. I think the yeah. football coach but, is going to do a I, lot I, more harm. But I see it as being fundamental to his role, his job of, of promoting I agree with a, you. A, an enlightenment approach to I agree uh, with you. He's solving the, the wrong problems. person. He probably should never so have gotten he just the job. Exhibited that he's the wrong person for the job. Yes, but you don't yeah. go out and fire people for their beliefs. Right. That's just not not the the way to go in a liberal society. I'm sorry. Right. It's thought policing. Right. Well, just because it's thought policing, if his thoughts are crazy and he's there to okay, if he's certifiably insane, he's, he's there to present rational then you, thoughts. Then it's like, sorry, this is an environment where we need rational yes, thoughts. I agree you, with you. you Unless he's certifiably insane, you know, you bring the van up and you, you bring the people in the white coats and you gently sort of say, oh, look, we're just going for a little ride. Could you put on this nice coat? And then you tie his arms behind his back, you know, or cross his chest or wherever they go. Right. But no, sorry, no thought policing for jobs, please. I mean, for hiring, maybe. Right. But not no, firing people because they, they have a crazy idea. I'm sorry. Okay. Scott, are you convinced by the 12th man's argument? Or are you still... <laughs> no, not really. No, okay, not good. Really. It's, um, I just think to myself, the whole 
Thunder. Um, the whole thing is the question about the Holocaust itself is a nonsense. It's a historical fact. You've got to move on from that. And if anyone questions that type of thing, then I think they're probably opening themselves no, up for no, Scott, dismissal. In a liberal society, the, they, you've they, got they to be able to question it. everything. Got... That's the whole point. Everything Sorry? must be open what? to question. But, 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 what if, yeah, but what what if he was a football coach and he said, uh, guys, I want you to drink soft drinks. I want you to eat fatty foods. I've got this theory that uh, that uh, all the health science is totally bonkers and, in fact, uh, you should be smoking cigarettes, you should be drinking high-sugar uh, drinks and... That's not uh, about thought, is it? Well, well, isn't that... Isn't that you said, no, well, we can't address thought police. I mean, he has those thoughts and he expresses them. <laughs> You'd say to that football coach, that's not going to help promote uh, a winning football team. Well, his You're, team would probably get fat and lose every in, game, in, wouldn't indeed. they? Indeed. So, so then he would lose I, his job anyway. I, I could, could, so in that situation, if you had a football coach <laughs> who, who recommended a wacky diet yeah. that was totally against uh, every oh. principle of, of good health, could a, could a school say you're no longer the football coach. On the grounds and, that the team but, would probably be all but, over the but shop. Isn't it, hang on, but isn't that thought policing? I mean, in he's a got, sense he's got those thoughts. Yeah, well, in a sense, is, uh, he has that belief. I agree same, with you. So why are you allowing it in that situation? Well, perhaps we should policing. allow it, but uh, as soon as the team all started, you know, so to me, walking out and losing, losing the but, games, but, I think the but, players would probably arc up, wouldn't they? Well, what if the students arced up about the, the, um, about the Holocaust them. denial? Good for them. But you're saying if, uh, the, no. if, the, if the players arc up, you're saying that's a good reason no, no. for the coach to be it's, sacked. Well, but if the students arc up, that's not a good reason for the principal I to be I would sacked. encourage the students to challenge him. Yes, of course you would. But yes. okay, let's just get back to this. Yeah. You think the school could sack the head coach for recommending a crazy team. yes. For if, recommending a crazy well, diet. Well what if what if all the, the players could you just answer that question? Yeah, what if all the players please before said, before you get on to an alternative factual scenario. There's something just, wrong with the football coach. We you know, he wants us all to drink sugary drinks and um oh, not too sure about the coach. I mean, on on purely health grounds. I mean, you're right; it is th- thought policing to a certain degree, but it's at a much more sort of basic level, isn't it? It's, I mean, it's not a historical thought for one thing. It's a yeah. it's an idea so, about how to be healthy. So your ban, you say so your problem with thought policing is limited to just historical thought policing. Not limited, no. Nah. Not limited, but I mean. So some thought policing, some thoughts no, should no. not be policed, no, but some thoughts no. can be policed. Is th- that what you're saying? I, th- I think the school, high school coach, would lose his job uh, as a matter of, uh, you know, he he would just lose it because the team wouldn't do any good, and they would they would hire a better coach. I mean, that happens in sport. What if they didn't want to wait for um, the the team to? Perform. What if they were a champion team with really good players, yeah. much better than the other teams, and it would take a, a year or two for the okay. demise of the team? So give them a year. So in that case, you couldn't, you can't sack him until yeah, the look, performance. No, Is let's be real. It's a little bit different. I mean, you know, if you if you're coaching a football team, you're supposed to be doing things that make them physically capable. It's not so much 
you know, influencing their, their if, ideas if, if about the world. Educating students, you're supposed to be promoting um, a, a method of enlightenment thinking. No, 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 so, no. Not playing so, football's got nothing to do with the enlightenment. No, but I'm getting back to the principle with the Holocaust denying. You're, yeah. you're, you're saying that the football coach has to promote football skills. Yep. A, Athletic a, a school skills. principle. Athletic to, skills, school not intellectual skills. has to promote intellectual decision-making skills. You would think he, he should, yes. And clearly so, some of his, eyes, his ideas about history are a little bit wonky. Yes. But firing him for, you know... Well, we're going to fire the football coach. No, we're going to... The, the football coach is going to lose his job because he's not getting the team into the right shape to do the job. Right. And, and if the students fail... History classes. Um, if they, if As they, I said, they, the principal doesn't teach history. The principal's right. in the principal's well, office. Well, they've been listening to the principal and they said, oh, well. And, and when they get back to the classroom, yeah. the proper history teacher is going to say to the kids, look, uh, frankly, kids, um, just forget what the principal said on assembly because um, we are going to or but the you football know, team's dietitian well, is going to do that as well. Let's diet- investigate what the principal said the, and we'll find out whether he was right or wrong. But the football team's dietitian is going to do the same thing as well. <laughs> Isn't he or she? Po- possibly. Yeah. In which case the football coach should not be sacked because the dietitian well, is going to fix up the mistakes nothing, of the football coach. Nothing wrong with challenging the football coach or the right. principal. Right. But just firing him for one idea, that's a bit odd. No, sorry, that's thought policing. Well, thought policing is okay, apparently. Is it? Yeah. Well. Not in my book. Well, you were on, you were okay with it for a little while there. No, not really. All right. <laughs> oh, excellent. A little, a little ethical dilemma to finish off the evening. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Scott, that's worked well with the Skype. Uh, it has, yes. Yes, that's been good. I'm going to get you a better microphone. I hate that Yeti microphone. I'm going to get you a better one and one that you can put closer to you. So, it's anyway. like the one you gave me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've moved on from that. I'm going to have to get you a better <laughs> microphone. So. All right. Okay, in the chat room, thanks, Was. Um, what does Was say here? Uh, he follows a number of US Democratic presidential candidates and they're always asking for money and that's sad. Um, and he said, yet... It is presumably okay in the US for principles to cast doubt on Darwin's theory of evolution. Well, it would be in a religious school. It shouldn't be in a in a. Uh, Look, it's appalling. This, this is where yeah. religion gets a free ride that, that often doesn't apply in other uh, walks mm. of life. Yeah, righto. Thanks, everyone, in the chat room. Thank you for listening uh, on the podcast in the normal fashion. Not sure what's happening next week because I'm in Sydney. There might be something a bit different. We'll see what happens. So, all right. Well, bye for now, everyone. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Bye now. Absolutely. I know Trev. No, no, Big Trev is as honest and straight as he is big. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Vis Velvet Glove and 
subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.